Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 228. Forgiveness not permission. Last time, we watched as John Komnenos attempted to untangle the Gordian knot which Anatolia had become. After campaigning against the Danishmans, John moved on to Cilicia and Antioch. The emperor attempted to enforce his rights without angering the Latins, a trick he failed to pull off. Today, John will be forced to go through the whole process all over again, but when he reaches the gates of Antioch this time, he won't take no for an answer. As you'll recall, we left the emperor in Cilicia in autumn 1138, just after being chased out of Antioch by a crowd who the Latins had stirred up. John sailed home, but ordered his army to walk. While they had been in the east, the Turks of Iconium had raided imperial territory. So John told his men to raid their lands as they made their way west. With retribution achieved, the army arrived in the vicinity of Nicaea, expecting to be disbanded for the winter. But their officers now informed them that they would be staying in Anatolia and campaigning again in the spring. This caused a good deal of resentment. Remember that this army had been assembled during the winter of 1136, Soldiers were not used to serving for this length of time continuously. They wanted to go home and see their families. John had men posted on the roads to stop them from taking matters into their own hands. This was the problem with operating on such a crowded chessboard. The only way John could apply pressure to his enemies was to campaign constantly. Every year he wasn't knocking heads together was time that his enemies could use to regain their strength. For example, after the Romans left Cilicia, the Danishmans raided it. The Vasilevs managed to mollify his army, and they marched out again in spring 1139. Their target was the Danishmen capital of Neo-Caesarea. John wanted to permanently hobble the Turks of northern Anatolia. As the Romans marched east into the old Armeniacon theme, the Turks scattered. They weren't interested in confronting such a large force head-on. This allowed the Romans to capture and garrison some forts and make their way all the way to the border with Trebizond. 
Trebizond was the last Roman port before you hit the Caucasus. Because of the thick mountain chain surrounding the city, Trebizond had repeatedly been able to throw off Constantinople's control and make its own alliances with the neighbouring Turks. They had done this several times during Alexius's reign and again during John's first decade in power. These revolts were essentially attempts to stop paying taxes to the emperor rather than a serious bid at full independence. After ten years of ignoring John's commands, the city quickly came to heel once the emperor was in the neighbourhood. A small detachment of the army made its way across the hills and took control of the city. The rest of the army set up a winter camp on the Lycos River and waited for spring. John didn't want to wait too long, though, and made his next move in February 1140, pushing his army west towards Neo-Caesarea. The reason the Danish men had chosen this somewhat obscure site to be their capital was because of its highly defensible position. Its citadel was up a mountainside, and the approach to the city was guarded by two rivers and mountains on either side. The productive farmland of the region was all clustered around the city too, meaning that a besieging army would struggle to keep themselves supplied. All of which might make you wonder why John attacked when it was still winter. Possibly he'd read his strategicons and knew that the best time to tackle steppe nomads was when the grass on the ground was thin. Perhaps he thought he could better starve the city if he arrived before crops could be harvested, Either way, the results were predictable. The Romans themselves were the ones who suffered malnutrition and loss of life. Their own horses began dying off, and the emperor was forced to create a new combined cavalry corps from the units which survived. Despite the poor condition of the imperial army, the Danishmen's knew that they were in mortal danger. Their warriors harried the Romans constantly from the moment they left their camp on the Lycus to when they set up their siege works at Neo-Caesarea, the Turks peppered them with arrows and then would disappear. John's sleep-deprived, hungry army put up a good show under the circumstances. They surrounded the city and began to bombard it, and they chased away the nomads who attacked them. We're told that the emperor's youngest son, Manuel, rushed to the aid of a unit who were under attack and fought hand-to-hand with the Turks. We're also told that John beat him, or at least scolded him, when the two were alone for risking his life in that way. By May, it was clear to John that he could no longer prosecute the siege. The defenders had more food than he did, and his army's strength was dwindling. Eliminating the Danishmen's would clearly take a huge effort, and his exhausted troops were in no position to give any more. There was also a high-profile defection which caused the emperor great anxiety. As you know, John's brother Isaac had gone into exile during the previous decade, taking his son, named John, with him. The two exiles had been reconciled with the emperor, who had brought his nephew John on this campaign. During the siege at Neo-Caesarea, though, young John defected again. He already knew the Danishmen's, and clearly felt his future was brighter as a permanent rebel rather than as a mistrusted prince. Fearful that his nephew would reveal the extent of his supply crisis to the enemy, John ordered his army to pack up and march home. Understandably, the emperor spent most of the next year in the capital. 
giving him and his soldiers a chance to rest. His brother Isaac was quietly removed from Constantinople, and the emperor spent 1141 busily writing letters to the Pope and the new German emperor trying to reconstruct his anti-Norman alliance. This included the offer to marry his son Manuel to a relative of Conrad III's. Italy seemed quiet enough for now, though, so John moved forward with his plans. And when the emir of the Danishmens died, plunging his realm back into civil war, it gave John the freedom he needed to once again move on Antioch. The emperor gathered his army and marched for Italia in spring 1142. We aren't actually sure if Antioch was the original destination of this campaign. After reaching Italia, John led his troops to the large lake, which lies roughly halfway between Iconium and Italia. The lake was known as Corrales to the Romans, and it's Beishahir today. There are several islands in the lake, each with a small fortress attached. John spent several weeks besieging and capturing each island, clearly as a stepping stone for a future campaign against Iconium itself. This incident is interesting for two reasons. One, John mounted his siege engines on boats to bombard each island, demonstrating his relentless commitment to the power of the Traction Trebuchet. And two, the people living around this lake were all Romans, who didn't particularly want to be reabsorbed into the empire. Their lakeside lifestyle was clearly in no danger of being usurped by the Turks, who they were on friendly terms with. And since the Turks presumably taxed them less than the Byzantines did, they were happy with the status quo. It's one of the few times we get a glimpse of post-Manzikert life for the Romans of the plateau. Anyway, after the islands had all been taken, tragedy struck. John's eldest son, the 36-year-old Alexius, died from a sudden fever. The heartbroken John led the army back to Atalia, where Alexius's body was put on a boat and sent back to Constantinople. John ordered his second and third sons, Andronicus and Isaac, to escort the body home. Worse was to come, though. On the voyage west, John's second son, the 34-year-old Andronicus, also perished. It's not clear when exactly this news would have reached the emperor, but it must have been a staggering blow. Shortly after sending his sons back to Constantinople, John ordered the army to march on to Cilicia. It was already August, so it clearly wasn't the plan to do much fighting that year. The Romans would have to spend the winter in Cilicia before any serious Syrian campaigning could take place. Historians at the time and today speculate about quite what John was thinking. Was the original plan to attack Iconium, and the death of his son changed his mind? Or was the plan always to go to Antioch, but the attack on the lakes took longer than expected? Adding fuel to the fire is the suggestion in one contemporary history that the emperor planned on dividing the empire in two, leaving the centre with his remaining son Isaac, and then creating a new kingdom out of Antioch, Cilicia and Cyprus for his youngest son, Manuel, who was on campaign with him. This idea could be pure speculation, catalyzed by the fact that two of John's sons had just died, the grieving emperor deciding to hand over power to his surviving sons before any new tragedy struck, 
But there is a certain logic to the plan. Unlike in previous eras, when dividing the empire would have led directly to civil war, that was no longer so likely. A new ruler of Antioch would have far too much on his plate to contemplate marching on Constantinople. And this could be a way to conciliate the Latins, perhaps marrying Manuel to a princess of Antioch, as had been suggested several times before. According to one of our Latin historians, John was also receiving calls for help from Prince Raymond of Antioch. Antioch and Edessa were coming under severe pressure from the emir of Mosul, who now controlled Aleppo and the surrounding territories. John decided to make a show of force in the area before winter set in, not just to warn the Muslims of his presence, but to cow Jocelyn and Raymond as well. The Romans marched through Cilicia and on to Edessa, demanding that the Count hand over hostages. Jocelyn wasn't messing around this time, and sent his daughter to the Byzantine camp. The Vasilevs now wheeled around and marched for Antioch. He sent messengers ahead, demanding that Raymond let the Emperor and his army in for the winter. Raymond still didn't want to comply, and with a strong Norman contingent at his court, the elites were united in their opposition to a Byzantine takeover. They made excuses based on the intricacies of feudal law, essentially saying John could come in but not his army, or else the people would riot again. The emperor was irritated but still didn't want to force his way through the gates, so he decided to head back to Cilicia for the winter and wait for spring, at which point Raymond would have to exit the city and present himself to the emperor or break his own oaths. The Romans deliberately marched through the suburbs of Antioch, though, as they passed by, taking food from the hands of the local Muslims. John spent the winter in Tarsus, with everyone around him sure that Antioch would be his the following summer. A delegation from Genoa even visited the emperor to negotiate trading rights. John exchanged letters during this period with King Fulk of Jerusalem. The Romans clearly wanted to bring all the crusader states under their protection and presumably restore orthodox clergy to the Holy Land. The negotiations also touched again on some kind of bride for Manuel. Marrying him into the crusader aristocracy seemed the best way to get the Latins to treat the Byzantines as equals. While the emperor was in Cilicia, he also continued to ingratiate himself with the local elites. In April 1143, John went on a hunting trip with them near Anazarbos. While tracking a boar on foot, the emperor fell backwards and cut his hand on one of his arrows. Initially, it didn't seem like a big deal, but the wound became inflamed. The doctors fussed around him but couldn't stop the infection spreading. John quickly grew sick and then died a few days later on the 8th of April. He was 55 years old and had ruled the empire with great energy for 25 years. We have conflicting reports about what happened during those last few anxious days. As you know, John's third son Isaac was back at Constantinople, while his fourth son Manuel was at his bedside. Neither had yet been crowned emperor. Isaac was five years older than Manuel, but Manuel was present with the army. 
Our historians all agree that John decided for himself that Manuel would make the better ruler and nominated him to be his successor. But our historians all grew up during Manuel's reign, by which time this legitimizing story had had time to spread. An anonymous panegyric has also survived from this time, though, which says that the army acclaimed Manuel emperor and that John, from his deathbed, merely nodded his assent. This potential confusion has naturally led to more questions. Was John assassinated? Is the whole hunting story a little too convenient? Did Manuel manipulate the succession? We can't be sure, of course, but there's no hint of foul play in the sources. Manuel's first act as emperor, understandably, was to get back to Constantinople to secure his rule, which has led some, naturally, to suspect that Prince Raymond of Antioch must somehow have poisoned the emperor, since he was the prime beneficiary of John's death. But it seems doubtful he would or could have taken action against John, John was still offering to shower Raymond in money and find him a new kingdom, even if he did give up Antioch. If Raymond was found to have killed the emperor, it would give the Byzantines every excuse to destroy him. The other major beneficiary of John's sudden demise is, of course, his son Manuel. But again, why would Manuel do this? His father was probably planning to set him up in Antioch as the new ruler. Yes, Constantinople is even better, but we have no evidence that Manuel committed patricide. The only evidence we do have hints at what seems the more likely bit of skullduggery, that with John dying, Manuel and his supporters acted to secure the succession for themselves. This is all, of course, speculation. It's still possible that John simply thought Manuel would make a better emperor, or that he was worried his brilliant army might disintegrate without an emperor at its head. Suspicion will always remain, though, because it's so unusual that he would bypass an older son for his youngest. How, then, do we sum up John's reign? I knew almost nothing about him when I started, and at this point I'm tempted to rank him as one of Byzantium's greatest generals. I can't think of another emperor who campaigned in person both north of the Danube and south of Antioch. Whether he was defeating steppe nomads or capturing cities, John seems unusually decisive and successful, particularly for the leader of an empire in such a precarious position. Trebizond and Cilicia would remain under Roman control for the rest of the century, which is very impressive given the upheavals that lie ahead. And yet the spectre of Antioch and of the Fourth Crusade hang over John's reign. It's not fair to judge an emperor based on events yet to happen, but one has to wonder if John could have taken Antioch by force and asked for forgiveness later. It's a harsh judgment given he was, we assume, merely months away from taking the city peacefully. But all of John's failures came when he reached the finish line and failed to cross it. He couldn't take Shazar or Neo-Caesarea or Antioch. At some point, he might have had to force the issue to ensure his successor inherited a more secure empire. He didn't accomplish this, and his successors never would. I'm trying to put that out of my mind, but it's tricky. 
What I will say is that it's hard to think of a better emperor that the Romans could have had during this crucial period. In retrospect, it shines an even brighter light on Alexius, who had clearly prepared his son very well for the task ahead. Unfortunately, that task remains the same. The Byzantine emperor had to keep campaigning constantly until some of the pieces on the crowded chessboard could be removed. Few had done more to get his opponents in check, as John did, but the mate never came. If you've enjoyed learning about John Komnenos, then the credit should really go to historian Maximilian Lau, whose excellent forthcoming book about John has been my guide throughout these episodes, and I cannot recommend the book highly enough. Next time, I will interview Dr. Lau about his book, and he can tell you all about his research and about his travels across Turkey in John's footsteps. I'd also be delighted to put your questions to him. So if you have any questions about John Komnenos or this period in Byzantine history, send them to me, thehistoryofbyzantium at gmail.com, or post them on social media, or at thehistoryofbyzantium.com, and I will put them to Dr. Lau next week. <laughs>